Hey guys, hope you're having a fantastic week. Um, perfect guests for today who I'm very excited to talk to, Rania Kalik. She is a fantastic journalist, been covering what is going on in Israel, Palestine. Obviously, horrific atrocities being committed right now by the Israelis, um, Biden administration, you know, just shameful, total old school lockstep approach, whatever Israel says or does, it's always self-defense, it's always justified, no comment on all of the many Palestinian casualties, et cetera, et cetera. So she's the perfect person to break all of that down. Yeah. Um, Biden taking a nap, commented like for 30 seconds on it, and he was like, I got to go, I got to run. And then that was it. Um, he's had a he's had a pretty terrible record throughout his career on the issue of Israel mm-hmm. and I suspect that's going to continue and Par for the course. He's probably behind the scenes saying like baby don't kill that many people and then that's it that's probably the most he's pushing him. Um so there's a lot to talk to Ronnie about. She's an expert not only on that issue but also um basically on on US foreign policy in general. Yeah. She's pretty much an expert on all that but we're going to stick to Israel Palestine. Yeah, she's definitely someone I always look to for information with regards to foreign policy, in particular in the Middle East. So excited to talk to her. Um, There is a lot of other stuff in the news, though. This was so big, actually, like little gas crisis this week, gas shortage after the story is crazy. So a ransomware attack, and you guys probably know some of this already, hits Colonial Pipeline. They say, well, this only hit our sort of like corporate offices, but out of an abundance of caution, we're going to shut the pipeline down. And this was a ransomware attack, meaning that um, the hackers here, which I think were out of Russia, but not related to the Russian government, Russian hackers stole data and said, if you don't give us a bunch of money, we're going to release all of this data. That's the story that we've been told, at least. I'm sure there's a lot more going on there. Well, this causes, they shut the pipeline down. This pipeline is incredibly critical to supplies on the East Coast, especially in the Southeast. Gas stations start running out of gas. People start freaking out out, fleeing to the gas station. I had my mom call me and be like, oh my God, you got to fill everything up, like fill up all your cars, get out there right now. So this contributes to 30 and 40% spikes in demand for gasoline. Soon enough, um, because of the shutdown and that demand spike, you've got as much as half of gas stations around Metro Atlanta shutting down. North Carolina's really hard hit. Virginia, where I live, is fairly hard hit. Um, Genuine sort of like, you know, short-term crisis, gas prices going up, and no end in sight in terms of getting the pipeline back on. So two significant things happened as of Thursday. One is that the pipeline is now starting to come back online. So the, like, sort of gas supply crisis is going to be ended. They say in seven days the supply will be back to normal. So that's one piece. But the other thing that we found out, Kyle, which is really interesting, is initially the reports out were like, Colonial Pipeline did not pay the hackers, right? And yet they're still bringing the pipeline back online. But we found out today via Bloomberg, they actually did pay the hackers. They paid them $5 million a week ago as part of this ransom. And we're just now finding out about it. I mean, that doesn't seem like a good precedent to set. I'm no expert here. No, you know, I really would like to know why they decided to do that, because there's no guarantee. Even if you pay them that money, there's no guarantee that they're not like five more. Yeah. 
You know, they could easily do that. So I want to know what their reasoning was. I wanted to know why they made that decision, because like you said, they're incentivizing now this to happen in the future. Well, and there's pieces of it that I don't understand. And maybe I don't understand them because they don't make sense. And maybe I don't understand them because I just don't understand. But why is it that you pay the hackers, but you still shut down the pipeline? Like if the whole point of paying them is to resolve the issue so you don't have to shut down the pipeline, but then you shut it down anyway. Maybe yeah. they needed to reboot it with some new security stuff. Could be. Could I just be. made that up on the spot, but that would be an actual intelligent reason to do yeah. it. Yeah. Well, and there's the other piece of this is um, which is something that I followed for uh, a while now is corporations have little to no liability if their security systems are just total shit. Even when it's critical infrastructure. So are the taxpayers going to be paying that $5 million? Well, I don't know about that. It probably will be. I don't know about that. But, you know, obviously there was huge impact on consumers that's already, you know, hurt a lot of people in terms of gas prices spiking and the like shocks to the economy and all that sort of stuff. And there's basically no ramifications in place for corporations that are sort of knowingly negligent about their security practices. And oftentimes what happens that we've seen time and time again is people's personal data will be stolen. So it'll be like a credit card company or whatever, and your data will be stolen and they'll just be like, sorry, customer, sorry about that. We didn't protect your data sufficiently, but there's no consequences for that. But with something like this, you see this is like really critical infrastructure. This goes on for another week and you're in a really bad situation. You're basically like derailing the Biden presidency in real time. And um, it makes all of us incredibly vulnerable. You know, a great philosopher in the late 1990s warned us about this. His name is Jamiroquai. And he said, futures made of virtual insanity. And that's what we're witnessing right now, because you can't like you can't develop the ability to computerize everything and then not also develop the security hand in hand with that. You just can't do it because then everything's going to be re reliant on the Internet and on computers. And then if you don't have the security, the whole thing can come crumbling down in an instant with one hacker who knows what they're doing. Like, they, OK, they did this with gasoline. Who's to say they can't do this with electricity? Right. Everywhere. Wouldn't they be able to? Yeah. Theoretically, wouldn't they be able to do that? Isn't that a fucking terrifying thought? Like, wouldn't you rather be in a situation where it's more not computerized? And funny enough, that's why um, they have our nuclear arsenal is actually run by floppy disk. And there's always like Republicans always talk about, oh, we need to modernize that. We need to update that. And there's plenty of people who come out every time they make that argument. And they're like. No, actually, you don't, because if you update it and you get it off of floppy disks, well, then it instantly becomes hackable. Whereas right now, the floppy disks are not hackable. Mm. So as long as you add that floppy disk, you're good money. Yeah. But if you if you update it, it's going to be hackable. Let's so not you make shouldn't it so do that it. the nuclear arsenal can be hacked. Yeah. So listen, I mean, I'm sorry, but I think that's actually a really good argument. Wasn't there like a serial killer who predicted all these terrible things that were going to happen as a result of I don't know. making everything technological. I think there was. I'm forgetting. Was it the Unabomber? I don't remember the details, but you guys will correct me on that because I'm sure a lot of this you guys... something Ella, my daughter, would know. Well, then we need to, we need to ask Ella. <laughs> we, we need to Ella, ask Ella because, that, yeah, I'm pretty sure <laughs> like people have been warning about this for a long time, man. Don't become so reliant on this stuff because then something like this could happen. And... It's probably just the beginning. And update, everybody needs to, up, like, I don't know why either the companies or the government isn't more responsible with the security. Like, you have to update that security. Well, because they just feel like 
uh, I guess that would be expensive to like put those security procedures in place. And so they just roll the dice because there's no consequences. Now um, there is. No, well, yeah. yeah Biden just so- signed some sort of executive order with regards to this. I don't know the details. Oh, of what he it doesn't does know what he signed. Do he doesn't know where he is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what's this for? Uh, okay. But the <laughs> other piece of this is Republicans were getting like extremely overly excited about this. And yeah, because they were like, you've got these. We also had inflation numbers come out this week that were, you know, jumped up to 4%, which everybody should calm down about too, because there's, there's, uh, one of the reasons that that was the case is because you had a big drop in prices last year. So now they're getting back to where they were. So one month of increased inflation. So they're back to where they were and people are acting like. They're back to where it would have been if you didn't have a drop in prices from last year. So we had deflation and then the inflation got us back to normal and people are like, Inflation's on the way, bro. Well, so they've got you've got inflation and then you've got uh, this minor gas crisis. And they're like, he's Jimmy Carter. That's it. <laughs> so, they're so pathetic. They were like they're all so in on pathetic. the Jimmy Carter By the way, this week. The inflation thing, I've seen more and more right wing commentators talk about this. And it's so funny because you had these people who pretended to be populist for three and a half minutes, like mm. Josh Hawley and fucking Tucker Carlson. Right. The second it was convenient for them to make a hack partisan argument, yeah. they immediately dropped all the pretense of being a populist. Like Josh Hawley with like the thing, oh, it turns out. You know, you shouldn't pay people to stay at home or whatever. He tweeted some shit oh, like that. Like, oh, okay, Mr. That. Populist, you're against uh. fucking stimulus checks and unemployment in the middle of a pandemic. And what was a depression? Fuck off. Right. And then you had Tucker Carlson did a whole thing. I covered it on my show about like, oh, be afraid of inflation. Ugh. And oh my God. so all, they're, they're all now, all of a sudden, they're Austrian economics people, the right-wing economics people. And by the way, just so everybody knows, those guys are wrong about everything. They've been predicting <laughs> a crisis. And seriously, they've been predicting a crisis in Japan, a debt crisis, rampant inflation. They've been predicting that for decades. It has never fucking come. Well, they've been predicting it here, you know? I mean... Because they miss a key piece of the puzzle, which is if you have your own sovereign currency, if you control your currency, and we do... Right. It's not enough to just increase the spending amount and, and, and do quantitative easing. That's not enough to lead to the inflation. You also need colossal political instability, like a, a war on in the country. Right. Like that might lead to it, you know, but they don't. It's all partisan hack bullshit, because guess what? When Trump was in there, you had Josh Hawley. What was he saying? Two thousand dollar stimulus checks. Right. I agree with the two thousand. And so, you know, Biden does fourteen hundred and all of a sudden, whoa, 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 fourteen hundred is too much. You were just saying you wanted 2000 right. Hack of all hacks. Well, I hate these people. And there's people. another piece of the, the hypocrisy, too, which is like during Trump's term, they were like tight labor market. Amazing. That's going to lead to wage growth. This is great. And now that there are some signs of a tightening labor market leading to wage increases, they're like, this is horrible. You've got to pull these people up and force them back, back to work at minimum wage. Get them out there, um, which is also dissonant with their other rhetoric about like how moms should be able to stay home with their kids. If right. They want, yeah. Not be forced into the workplace. So there's all that's just all a stupid just mess. Flip on all of it. Inconsistencies and hypocrisies. Indeed. The total hacks. I hate them all so much. They piss me off. OK, so this I want to get your thoughts on this story because I thought this was interesting too. Um, WeWork's CEO 
told the Wall Street Journal that there's an easy way for companies to spot their most engaged employees or their best employees. Quote, they're the ones who want to come back to the office. Those who are least engaged are very comfortable working from home. So basically, like all of you who've been doing all your professional class people have been doing your Zoom meetings. You need to get your asses back to the office and then we'll know that you're good employees. Yeah, that's um, it sounds like some weird feudal shit that they're arguing like, you know, as time goes by, I get more and more uncomfortable with the whole like boss or employer employee dynamic. Yeah, it just Mm -hmm. seems like there's something fundamentally off with that. And it's funny how in some in the political context, if you have like one ultimate ruler, you call it a a dictator and you don't like it. Right. But in the economic context, if you have one ultimate ruler. No, they're like, a visionary. Yeah, it's like they're just that's just the boss. That's just the leader. It's yeah. like No, he's a he's a great man. Visionary. And they're almost always men, of course. I don't know why we why we accept that. And then you read something like this and you think, damn, they're really like they want to lord over you quite literally. They want to look over your shoulder to make sure you're doing that work twenty four seven. And you know what? People got a little taste of of some more freedom where yeah. you could lay around in your underwear and eat Cheetos as you do your work, watch some Bugs Bunny as you do your work. And they're like, I don't want you laying in your underwear and I don't want you eating Cheetos. I want you to be miserable as you're doing your work with perfect posture. <laughs> and that's like, I mean, come on. So, but you made an interesting point about this before. You said something about it's a war on introverts. Yeah. So, well, there's a couple layers here. So first of all, like we work is in the businesses of office space. Like they sell yeah, office mm-hmm. space. That's what they do. The so biased point. Yeah. Obviously there's like a capitalist motivation here of everyone's got to get back to the office because we've really got to make our quarterly numbers. And we work, of course, failing disastrous company to start with. So there's that layer. But then I, and I think the, the boss point is the, the most important one, which is like, Clearly, bosses want workers back in the office so they can keep a closer eye on them and have more control. I mean, that's just really what it's about. You have more control over that person's waking hours. And I think during the pandemic, a lot of what happened in the pandemic was horrific. A lot of it was very hard on people's mental health, regardless of your class status. Although I think certainly, obviously, the working class was overwhelmingly the hardest hit. But a lot of people also, there was a little bit of a reset in their relationship to work and certainly the workplace. Um, There was a story that came out early on in the pandemic where they found that white collar workers were becoming really disenchanted with their jobs when they were doing it from home because it no longer was surrounded with the trappings of like, hang out with these people and I'm going to get a coffee break and all of the sort of like social pieces of it that made you feel like that work was tolerable. It was stripped away. The human piece was stripped away. So it was just about like, I'm doing spreadsheets and I'm doing client calls and I'm like doing a presentation or whatever the work actually was. So there was a a little bit of a crisis of like, why the fuck? I hate this. I don't like like this shit. I fucking hate this. Why am I doing this? And you see on the margins, people who, you know, are in a very privileged position of having the ability to do this, you see them moving. You see cities actually offering cash bonuses to professionals to come and and move. You see people talking about, like, I want to rebalance my life. You see things like RV sales spiking through the roof because people are embracing more leisure and wanting to, can, to keep some of the additional time they're spending with their family, wanting to have more work-life balance. And any little slight shift in that mentality of work is everything, work is my identity, work is the center of my life, 
has profound consequences for bosses and for CEOs, et cetera. But I do think the other piece of this, just on the surface level, like the idea that the people who are least engaged are very comfortable working from home, well, probably the people who were most comfortable working from home were introverts, right? People who were totally fine to strip out all that, like having to deal with human beings on a daily basis, perfectly like happy Mm -hmm. and comfortable being at home. Um, I know you relate to that. I relate to that as well. I think I'm probably more on the introvert side than extrovert. And I do think that there's a big bias in society against introverts um, because we we've sort of, you know, fashioned the system where the people that we want to elevate to the top are the ones that talk the loudest and schmooze and work the system and all of that. So I sort of see those sentiments in this as well of like, if you don't want to be around all these other people, then you're not good at your job. Well, the future is ours. And by ours, I mean the introverts. Because <laughs> think so? I do. Yeah. Because like the younger generation is even more extremely online. And I don't think they need, by and large, they don't need the human connection in person nearly mm-hmm. as much. You know, I mean, I feel like I'm sort of the the very first generation of the internet kids. Yeah. Because I don't know how old I was when I feel like the the entire time I can remember we had a computer. Mm-hmm. Like when I was a kid, it was like the dial-up internet. Yeah. But I, I, as far back as I can remember, we had a computer. And like my whole life has sort of been shaped to a large degree by the internet. And so imagine what it's like now growing up as a kid and you, everybody who's comfortable being by themselves and staring at a fucking screen <laughs> You know, if you can do everything like that, those people are going to thrive. And the ones who are really going to struggle are the ones who really need that person to person connection and, you know, being face to face with somebody. And 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 for them, I think it'll, it'll actually be really hard because I think what we're seeing now is a profound shift in in the workplace, you know, and I don't know what it's going to look like in the future. Um, how much will it change? But what certainly feels correct is that the way we used to do it, I can't, it's not going to go back to that with like, so, I mean, the U S economy is like a service economy. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. it was, it's all, it was all service jobs. And I don't know how many of those jobs are coming back, you know, and I don't know exactly what's going to replace them. Well, and a lot of working class people reassessed their line of work during the pandemic when they were forced to. I mean, either they were forced onto the front lines and like at risk of dying from COVID and told Mm -hmm. they were essential, but not given any extra pay or protections or anything, or they lost their jobs there in the restaurant industry. And so you see a shift. Um, I saw Heather Long from The Washington Post did crunch some of the numbers. Grocery stores lost something like 49,000 workers over this year, even though obviously like grocery store demand was huge. Nursing homes also lost tens of thousands of workers and people saying like, I don't want to be in this industry. People are dying. Like Mm -hmm. nursing home workers were on the front lines and most nursing home employees make incredibly low wages. And it's some of the hardest work. My Mm -hmm. God, like physically and emotionally difficult um, gross, some of the things that you have. I mean, it's just like some of the most difficult work that you can possibly imagine. So you see shifts happen happening at every level. But yeah, I think, look, like it or not, the professional managerial class basically dictates the, dictates the culture in this country. So if there's even a little bit of a shift happening in their thinking and their approach to work and their relationship to it, that matters a lot. And one of the biggest shifts that happened, Derek Thompson wrote a great piece on this at The Atlantic, was... 
Obviously, the Zoom and Skype technology has been there. There wasn't a technological revolution this year, but there was a cultural shift, a gigantic one, in that now it's acceptable to do a meeting on Zoom. Before this year... Except for Jeffrey Tubin. If Yeah, he's banned. He's beaten off. He's banned. Yeah, uh, other but, than him, everybody's chilling. God, I forgot that story. Yeah. Oh, God, I want to forget that like, story. We instantly wanted to be like, we're not going to talk about this anymore. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. Um, but yeah, there's now, if you propose like, oh, let's do this over Zoom, there's no sort of judgment around it. It's all perfectly acceptable. Everybody's got the software. Everybody knows how to do it. Everybody's set up to do it. Um, that shift is going to have profound implications. And again, even if it's just on the margins in terms of people moving, restructuring their lives, et cetera, it's going to have huge ramifications. Low key though, everybody chill with the Zoom shit and just do a phone call. Yeah, I, I don't agree want, like, with don't, that. Don't Everybody's got to be on, like, on the video cameras. Like, can't we just have hello, a phone, everybody. like a normal phone call? I am existing in a room and you can see I'm in a room. I and totally agree with that. I swear I'm wearing pants. <laughs> you know, totally it's like, just let me lay that. down. Let's drop all the pretense about Unless how I have to have a good posture. there's a reason for it to be visual. Right, like you want to see Jeffrey Tubin beaten off. <laughs> that would be a reason to <laughs> that be That would be one reason. Yes. Or like if there's a presentation involved or something like, you know, there's some times where there's a legitimate reason to be on Zoom, but most of the time it's like, can't we just do a conference yeah, I'm not, I'm not buying, conference call? I'm not buying that there's reasons. That, no, there's not. But I like what you said earlier about um, this is about RVs and about, oh, I, I wanted to add to that. And like those tiny homes. Yeah. So I bet you that those are going to, those are going to, I'm guessing, I'm, I bet there's going to be a surge in that because when people reevaluate, a lot of people probably realize, Hey, I don't really need to work nearly as much if I have like not nearly non-existent bills with like a tiny home. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I bet there's going to be a surge in those too. And listen, I mean, sort of makes sense, right? Like a lot of people live life just doing the things that they think they're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And everybody's been told every step of the way, like you got to grow up, you got to go to work, you got to get a good job and you got to spend five days a week there. And like you said, with COVID, there was sort of like everybody had a moment of like, why am I doing this shit? Everybody was forced to rethink and turn their lives upside down. And then when the government sent that first stimmy, everybody was like, (laughs) oh shit, the government could do this? They should keep doing this. (laughs) Exactly right. Yeah. Um, All right. I want to get to Rania. Uh, We introduced her a little bit already, but incredible journalist. She uh, does a show called Dispatch on Breakthrough News. Um, Really excited to get to talk to her. So here is Rania Kalik. Rania, it's so great to see you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on with you guys. Um, So I wanted to start with just the basics for people who haven't been following all the ins and outs of what is going on in Israel-Palestine right now and what led to this current outbreak of violence. Well, of course, as you know, you know, this is an ongoing conflict for several decades. Um, It's never really peaceful. But the recent escalations started a few weeks ago uh, with these provocations by both the Israeli government in tandem with these settlers in Jerusalem um, in two ways. First is this uh, neighborhood called Sheikh Jarrah, which is a Palestinian neighborhood in occupied East Jerusalem, uh, where about 70 people are facing uh, Israeli court orders for eviction that have been put forward by these settler organizations who are attempting to replace the Palestinians in East Jerusalem with Jewish settlers so they can, what they call, Judaize East Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem in an attempt to ultimately take over the entire city uh, for Israel. And so this has been ongoing for years, actually, these these, these fights in the courts, but it escalated in recent weeks because uh, the Israeli government under Benjamin Netanyahu has been pushing for these evictions to take place. I mean, evictions isn't really the right word. The right word for this is ethnic cleansing. I mean, this isn't a part of an ongoing campaign to remove Palestinians from East Jerusalem and, like I said, replace them with Jewish settlers. So that's one side of this equation. On the other side is in Jerusalem, there's a place called Al-Aqsa Mosque, which I'm sure you guys have seen a lot in the news in recent days. And Al-Aqsa Mosque is the third holiest site in Islam. More importantly, it's very important to Palestinians. Um, And it's a site that people have been going to a lot in recent weeks because it's been Ramadan. And as the stuff in Sheikh Jarrah is taking place where you've had many protests by Palestinians against these evictions, there's also been more and more provocations uh, at Al-Aqsa Mosque by Israeli Jewish settlers um, because there is a movement in Israel called the Temple Movement. And this is made up of really fanatical um, fanatical Israeli Jewish settlers who have this uh, ideology where they want to basically demolish the Al-Aqsa Mosque and rebuild in its place a third Jewish temple in an effort to bring out bring about the end time. So it's this very messianic, uh, very religious, fanatical view. Um, these people, you know, are, are really reminiscent of the kinds of people you might see in ISIS. It's a very like Taliban style uh, view of the world. And so they, they ha- also have the backing of the Israeli state because more and more people who are a part of their Temple Mount movement are in the Israeli government. And so there were there were also these provocations at Al-Aqsa Mosque to basically, you know, with the help of the Israeli police, uh, not allow Palestinians to worship there, push them out, attack them with the help of settlers. And so these two things have been happening in parallel that basically made Jerusalem you know, go up in flames. And then it escalated even more this past week as, um, you know, things with, you know, the Hamas and Gaza got involved because they, of course, see what's happening in Jerusalem as an ongoing attack on Palestinians. And so they fired rockets uh, towards Jerusalem and uh, it escalated from there. And now it's an attack, you know, an attack on Gaza. You also have inside of Israel proper, inside of, you know, what's considered Israel, uh, Palestinians of citizens of Israel had been protesting in solidarity. And now they're being, you know, they, they were being attacked by the Israeli police and extreme brutality. And now you have this new element of these really extreme Israeli settler types inside Israel um, going around and trying to attack Palestinian citizens in these kind of mixed Palestinian Jewish cities in Israel. And so you've kind of got these lynch mobs roaming the country. And so now there's a state of emergency in at least one Israeli city. So, you know, the entire place is kind of on fire right now. And it's escalated to a degree where, you know, I'm not sure it's reversible, at least not for a few days. So there's a million questions that I want to ask based off of that. But I guess um, let's start with this. Talk to me about the laws that are on the books that sort of solidify an apartheid system. Those are laws, uh, you know, is it in the West Bank? Is it in Jerusalem in particular? I know that they have like quotas of what percentage of the population they want to be Jewish. Can you uh, tell me about some of those laws? So, you know, of course. But first, let me just explain, you know, Israel's founding is very important to understanding this, right? Israel's founding was the idea of creating a Jewish state in a part of the world that's not majority Jewish. And in order to do that, 
there had to be a lot of violence. In the case of, you know, 1948, there was this massive campaign of ethnic cleansing that pushed out some, in a very coordinated and pre-planned effort, some 750,000 Palestinians. And that's why you have Palestinian refugees, you know, all over the place in the Middle East from that conflict. More Palestinians were pushed out in 1967 when Israel took even more territory. Uh, And this has kind of been ongoing since then in a very slow motion sort of way. And one way that Israel has managed to sort of contain the Palestinian pushback to this is by creating a very, um, a very, uh, like a, a system where Palestinians are sort of cordoned off in different areas in different ways where different rules and different rights apply to them. So you have about two and a half million Palestinians in the West, West Bank who are subjected to Israeli military occupation. They're surrounded by not just Israeli soldiers and checkpoints, but also Israeli settlements um, that, you know, literally, I mean, if you look at a map, you will see it's uh, it's just Palestinian neighborhoods across the West Bank surrounded by these apart, what they call apartheid walls, segregation walls, separation barriers, whatever word you want to use, as well as settlements that are literally built around them to surround them, in some cases on their land, and they've been pushed out. So that's one identity, is the Palestinians in the West Bank who are subjected to you know, Israeli military rule, um, Israeli, Israeli military courts. Uh, and then there's also the Palestinian Authority, which is in charge there, that has is ultimately kind of an arm of the Israeli occupation. Um, the Israelis and the Americans have kind of outsourced a, a part of the occupation and some of the security that goes with that to the Palestinian authorities. So in some places, the Palestinian authorities in charge, which just kind of carries out the occupation and containment strategy for the Israelis. Um, so that's one level. Then you have the Palestinians in Gaza. You have almost 2 million Palestinians in Gaza, the vast majority of whom are actually either refugees or the descendants of refugees who fled, uh, who fled present-day Israel 1948 in this massive campaign I mentioned of ethnic cleansing. Um, And these Palestinians are subject to an air, land, and sea blockade that's enforced by Israel, as well as participation from the Egyptians who control one side of a very small sliver of the border. Um, And, you know, there are no Israelis inside of Gaza. There's no Israeli soldiers occupying Gaza. But Israel is essentially in charge of this very, very densely populated small strip of land because it controls who and what goes in and out. Um, So they're still responsible for this territory. Uh, And, you know, this is people call this an open air prison because people can't leave. There's you know, they're just stuck in this place where they can't access the outside world. Um, And Israel's sort of like the prison guard for all of these people. Um, And, you know, the only reason they're trapped there and have no rights is because they just happen to be not Jewish. And then you have another million or so Palestinian citizens of Israel. These are people who were not pushed out or who stayed um, after what happened in 1948, after Israel's founding. And they have a bit more rights, right? Like they are citizens of Israel. They're not locked in an open air prison. They're not subject to this like military occupation. However, they are second class citizens. There are about 50 different laws on the Israeli books that explicitly discriminate against non-Jews. So Palestinians inside Israel are really limited in where they can live, for example, where they can build houses, for example, um, and all kinds of other ways. And people, if they want more information for this, uh, there's a really great organization called Adala 
that is a Israeli human rights organization where you can go look at these 50 laws I'm talking about. You know, they display them in great detail. Um, so, you know, the Palestinian citizens of Israel happen to be poor. Um, they're, de- they're very neglected. And there's something new that's been happening in recent years, which explains a lot of the sort of protests and social unrest you see right now, which is that the Israeli settler organizations that are building in the West Bank illegally and trying to kick people out Palestinians out of Jerusalem have also been sending in settlers to go basically buy housing and live inside Palestinian neighborhoods and mixed neighborhoods inside Israel to basically provoke Palestinians and also try to push them out from there. Because ultimately, what these right-wing fanatics, their their agenda is to ultimately have a greater Israel that is free of any non-Jews. Um, it's a really nasty ideology. It used to be much more fringe, um, but you know, after two decades almost of Netanyahu being in power, he's really Netanyahu's not a religious fanatic. He's you know kind of more like a right wing. He's a Republican, if you will. Um, he's a secular right winger, but he's made this alliance with these religious fanatics, and as a result, they've gained more and more power inside the Israeli government. So even if they don't necessarily represent all of Israeli society, they have huge influence on what happens to Palestinians now and where, you know, the trajectory of Israel as we move further and further, you know, into the future, you know, present day and towards the future. I mean, these people are elected to the Knesset. They have people in local offices, both in Israel and, of course, they're in charge in the West Bank. Um, And, you know, they also, you know, they're the deputy mayor of Jerusalem is one of them. I mean, these people are in high positions of power and it's really disturbing. I would compare them to like, I mean, they're, they really they really have a fanatical religious, they want a theocracy in Israel. And there's yeah. some really great, you know, sorry, you could go ahead. I'm kind of rambling well, now, but I, it's just, it's really you, frightening. I want you to go into more depth there because you made a claim that sounds, sounds outrageous, right? You said that this group of right-wing fanatics, you equate them to ISIS. Um, but in terms of it, and you talk about their agenda of ethnic cleansing to actually remove all Palestinians from Israel, this isn't speculation. This is based on, their words of what they yeah. actually, I mean, this is very like upfront about their goals. The deputy mayor you're referring to, some people may have seen him on video um, yelling at a Palestinian activist saying, I wish you would have been shot in the head. This again, Oof. elected official, deputy mayor of Jerusalem. So talk about why you feel justified in the comparison to ISIS and what you base the comments about ethnic cleansing on. Well, when I talk about ISIS, I mean, what I'm saying here is ISIS has this ideology. It's this Salafi jihadi organization that wherever they were in charge, whatever territory they came in to charge of, they were they essentially had this ideology of wanting to purify the area of non-Sunnis, non-Sunni Muslims, and of instituting this theocratic Islamic state, right, where everybody is of the same ethnicity or everybody's of the same religion. Um, And minorities were, you know, pushed out or forcibly converted. And so that's why I make the comparison to ISIS. Obviously, they're not exactly, they kind of look the same, though. I mean, if you see these people on video, they have the long beards, they have, they, they, you know, they they match each other. um, And and, and the way they physically dress and act. Um, but that's what I mean here. It's this agenda for theocracy. It's this very regressive, religious, totalitarian agenda that wants to impose, in the case of Israel, they want to impose Jewish law in Israel. They don't want democracy. And in fact, and this is another comparison to ISIS, you know, one of their greatest enemies, they see, they, they see basically any Jew that doesn't agree with them as the enemy. 
right? And that's what you see with ISIS too, is they see any Muslims that don't agree with them as the enemy. They consider them, you know, liberals and leftists. Like that's that's how these religious fanatics in Israel are. So they don't just attack Arabs and Palestinians. They also attack what they perceive as leftist Jews. Um, and that happens with with pretty you know pretty much with regularity. Uh, and as a result, you do see a lot of more liberal Israeli Jews having left the country in recent years. Um, for like Europe, <laughs> um, uh, and sometimes Berlin of all places, um, because they just don't see their future or have, you know, being sort of having anything in common with the kinds of people who are taking over this country. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there is something to be said. There is a parallel to be made. And in some ways, this kind of makes Israel fit into its Middle Eastern environment is, you know, it, Israel isn't immune from the kinds of trends that you see across, you've seen across the Middle East in recent years towards this religious fanaticism. Um, they have their own version of it. That's an interesting so, point. Um, Rania, what was the nominal reason that Israel gave for storming the mosque, which I knew they did twice. I think they did it on the 7th and they did it on the 10th. Usually they have some sort of pseudo defensive rationalization. Did they even provide one or did they just storm the mosque because they wanted to mess with everybody in the mosque? I'm not sure if they provided one. I don't recall them providing one before the fact, but after the fact, they had just always, you know, looked to the words of security. You know, we had to uh, secure the area. Palestinians were throwing stones. You know, that's often yeah. what they'll mm -hmm. go with is they were throwing stones and being provocative and throwing Molotov cocktails and so on. Um, and also, you know, it seems almost like no one's in charge. Like right now in Israel, you don't have a government um, because nobody was able to form a coalition. So you've got a sort of absent, you know, uh, you've got a sort of a vacuum of power right now. And in some cases, there's no limits on what the police can do because it's just the police chiefs in, in charge. So that's one aspect of it is just so the Israeli... It doesn't stop with Netanyahu, you don't think? He's not the one who's really calling all the I'm shots? I'm sure. So, I mean, you know, all we can really do is speculate because we're not inside the rooms of the people making these decisions. But what it seems like is Netanyahu is just kind of letting the police go wild without any limits because it behooves him. I mean, he is in a really difficult situation right now. He's facing these corruption charges. Right, There's yeah. a lot of evidence against him. He's well, facing jail time. that's one of the why they may have done it. I'm sorry to cut you off, Rania, but that's one of the, I mean, I've heard the speculation that maybe that's one of the reasons why they stormed the mosque twice is because Netanyahu could be like, look over there. Don't look at me. Crisis. Yeah. That's part of it. It's also Netanyahu, like I mentioned before, has made this alliance with these religious fanatics and he needs their he needs their backing. Right. He doesn't want the so-called labor liberals, whatever you want to call them. No, they're not really that liberal, but he doesn't want them forming a coalition. He has to solidify the right wing base behind him. And one way to do that is to give them what they want. So these images of you know, uh, Muslims, this is how they see it, is Muslims being stormed in Al-Aqsa and pushed out by the Israeli police are images that rile them up. It's like red meat for that religious base that really wants to demolish that mosque. So that's a part of it, too, is solidifying that right wing base to support him when he needs all the support he can get to stay in power. What led to the rise of the right in Israel in recent years? 
Well, part of it is what I had described, you know, the Netanyahu making this alliance with the right wingers as he's in power, the, the religious right wingers as he's in power. That's made a really big difference. But there's also a couple things here. Um, and I do encourage, you know, uh, people to go listen to really like experts on this issue. People like David Sheen is probably one of the foremost experts on the rise of the religious right in Israel. But as people like David Sheen explain it, um, you know, first there's the issue of, in the early 2000s, uh, there were settlers in Gaza, like the way that there's settlers in the West Bank, Israeli Jewish settlers. There was also Israeli Jewish settlers in Gaza. And they were ultimately, there was a decision made by the Israeli government. You know what? We don't really care about Gaza. We don't want that territory. We want to focus on the West Bank. So let's just remove the settlers from Gaza, right? We have more settlers in the West Bank anyways. It's just a few, you know, it's not that many in Gaza. So they removed these really fanatical religious Israeli Jewish settlers forcibly. The Israeli army removed them from Gaza. It was a huge deal. And the settler movement saw this as a huge loss. And they said, you know what? We're never letting this happen again. We are entering politics to make sure this never happens again. So they became extremely politicized by that and decided, you know, we need to have the ability to be in power. Uh, to be in political positions to prevent the removal of our people ever again from the settlements that we've created. So that's one side of it. Another side of it is just this trajectory of Israeli society uh, to the right as well, uh, becoming extremely racist. I mean, not even just the religious fanatics. I mean, just in general, becoming more and more racist against Arabs and Palestinians. And one big reason for that is the separation. You know, it, it back in the 90s, um, you know, before all the Oslo Accords were really implemented, um, before there was these separation walls built, Palestinians and Israelis interacted with each other much more. Palestinians moved back and forth between, you know, the West Bank, Jerusalem. They a lot of them worked inside Israel. They were workers, construction workers. Um, so there was a lot more interaction. So there was, you know, even though you had this conflict going on, you still kind of saw them as people. But once there was this the strategy of separation, of building walls, of making it impossible for Palestinians in the West Bank to travel into Israel, to really segregate neighborhoods, like they're so segregated now, there's very, very little interaction between Israeli Jewish society and Palestinian society. So that's made it much more easy to dehumanize. Um, if you don't see people, you never interact with them. They become the complete other. You live in a bubble of Israel where you don't see the suffering. You don't see the occupation. It's all like on a different planet to you. The only images you see of Palestinians are the ones you see on media. Uh, and then that's the other aspect of it is the media has been taken over uh, by right-wing forces as well. A lot of it funded by the same people who fund Netanyahu, the late Sheldon Adelson funds a lot of, or, you know, his money continues to fund a lot of Israeli media in a right-wing direction. So it's also the media and that, that, that Israelis are, um, are surrounded by that show them that, you know, these people are animals that you're under threat. And there's also, you know, Israeli education from a very young age, Israeli Jews are taught that Palestinians are essentially present day Nazis that want to genocide them. Um, and so if you grow up with that view of these people who you're colonizing, it's very, very easy to become hateful towards them. And so you also have this problem in Israel, uh, which is unlike other Western countries, where you actually have higher levels of racism among the youth than you mm. do among adults. Mm. So it's actually getting worse uh, for a lot of the reasons I just described, the racism. So it makes wow. it becomes easier for your society to become more right-wing and hateful. Wow. Yeah. 
you know, it's interesting because it seems like that's a prerequisite for atrocities to happen is that people need to be convinced like, oh, the atrocity is going to happen to us. So we have to do the atrocity before the atrocity happens to us. And then, you know, it's uh, sorry, my earpiece fell off there. Um, Yeah. So that's a that's like a tinderbox. So let me ask you this. In 2014, there was Operation Protective Edge. And, um, you know, Israel made a lot of the similar arguments that they're making now, like, oh, we have to do it. We have no choice. What are you going to do if Hamas is shooting rockets at you? And basically, when all the dust cleared after, you know, all those bombings, it was an 80% civilian death rate on the Palestinian side. There were over 2,000 who were killed on the Palestinian side. I believe there were a total of six civilians killed on the Israeli side. Anywhere between 40 and 70 Israeli soldiers were killed. To put that in perspective, on the Palestinian side, there were 500 children who were killed in the bombings in 2014. So my question is, do you think that this is going to be like that? Or is it even maybe going to be worse? Because now there's whispers about a potential ground invasion of Gaza. So at this point, I mean, it is for, it is frightening. There's always space for escalation. And one thing, one little thing that happens, you know, the wrong apartment building is hit. Um, the wrong, you know, Hamas doesn't have precision guided missiles like Israel does. They just fire their rockets. And so they don't know where they're going to hit. So if they hit the wrong place, kill a family. Um, if one thing like that happens that makes the other side crazy, like go nuts and call for revenge, of course it will escalate. It could absolutely escalate into a ground invasion. I mean, I think at, at this point, the ground invasion is more of a threat right, to try to deter Hamas. But I think Netanyahu, the Israeli government, really stepped in it this time because Hamas has, you know, they're, they're, they're working with homemade rockets, but there hasn't been a war like this in like seven years. Um, and so they've had time to gather more weaponry and they're in a much more militarily strong position than they were in 2014 and have the capability to do much more damage. As you've seen from these images of rockets raining down on Tel Aviv, uh, that's a really, really big deal. Um, so it's like the Israelis, this is basically ruining their image as the strongest straight in the region. So they, in their minds, need to reestablish deterrence. So the harder one side hits, the harder the other side is going to hit until it de-escalates. And this is where the U.S. comes in, right? Because there's nobody telling Israel to stop. That's the problem here, is Israel's unconditionally allowed to just continue to escalate its violence. And this is a nuclear-armed country. They have an army. They have a navy. They have an air force. Palestinians have homemade rockets. And they're, you know, Israelis have bomb shelters. Palestinians in Gaza do not have bomb shelters. They're like a naked, defenseless population of two million people who have nowhere to hide. They can't just leave Gaza. They can't. Israel doesn't let them. They have nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. And so this is on the U.S. at this point. I mean, we fund Israel, as I'm sure you guys and your listeners and viewers probably know. We give Israel $3.8 billion a year in unconditional military aid. And, you know, until someone says to Israel, you can't have that unless you stop your indiscriminate bombing campaign on this densely populated prison in Gaza, until that happens, they really have no incentive to stop. 
Yeah. Except well, for maybe if their own citizens get angry enough because they're sick of having to be in bomb shelters all day. And so far, the Biden administration has been absolutely terrible. There's nothing but standard issue, lockstep. Israel has a right to defend herself. Um, State Department spokesperson Ned Price, I'm sure I saw you sharing that video. Millions of people watching oh, that video. That was bad. Wouldn't even condemn the killing of Palestinian children. And then on the policy level, the U.S. is blocking right now a U.N. resolution mm, um, condemning yeah. the eviction of Palestinians from their lands, calling for an end to the violence. The U.S. is standing standing in the way of even that resolution, which seems to me, Rania, I mean, not that the Obama administration was great at all on these issues either, but at the very end of his administration, he notably let one of those UN resolutions go through condemning illegal settlement. So on this, it seems like Biden is even worse than where Obama was um, with regards to Israel-Palestine. I mean, I, I think it's still a toss up because you, we have to remember that in 24, right? When to, well, the one thing that Obama did in 2014 during the Israeli as relentless campaign on Gaza, Operation Protective Edge that Kyle mentioned earlier, that killed 500 children in 51 days, is in the middle of that bombing campaign, the Obama administration resupplied Israel yep. with bunker buster bombs. And yep. I mean, they were using bunker buster bombs to take out people's civilian homes. They wiped out uh, partially or in whole 140 Palestinian families. Um, like like entire families were just killed in their homes because they were hitting residential homes. Um, and so Obama resupplied them with bunker buster bombs to continue to do that. Wow. And of course, Biden was vice president. What's really surprising here is that Biden has been so hands off because they I imagine I mean, they're probably having talks behind the scenes to try to deescalate. Um, but just the level of, you know, 100 percent support, calling everything Israel does self-defense mm. when we're all watching the images coming out of there, we all see the sort of fanatical language of settlers trying, you know, hunting for Palestinians to attack, to lynch. We all see this happening, playing out. We all see the language of Netanyahu and the officials in his government and what they're saying. I mean, you know what they call these uh, these occasional repeated campaigns on Gaza, they call it mowing the grass. Mowing the grass, yeah. Right? They call it mowing the grass. Every few years, they openly say this. We have to go into Gaza and mow the grass, which means to set back Hamas, right? To set them back, to set Gaza back, to essentially punish them for refusing to submit to, you know, their own oppression. Um, and I mean, what do you expect people to do? Like, everybody wants to sit here and add caveats. We condemn Hamas. We condemn the rocket attacks. Fine, whatever. Of course, you know, I don't want to see any violence. I don't want to see anybody hurt or die on either side of this conflict. That said, we can't keep pretending there are two sides here. There's one side that is constantly subjecting the other side to a level of cruelty that none of us could ever imagine. And there's another side that's being told, as we saw in that Ned Price uh, uh, you know, clip that's been making the rounds that you mentioned, that's essentially being told to please die quietly. You don't have a Palestinians. They don't have a right to self-defense. They're just supposed to, you know, accept Israel, you know, taking away their rights and their land and pushing them out. They're just and bombing them and killing their children. I mean, they're just supposed to accept that. And then when they react to it, like it's not unique among Palestinians, any people in this situation that's being subjected to this level of violence would hit back. 
it's totally normal and, and, and a human response. Rania, one thing I did want to ask you on the point of Ned Price, because one thing that was noteworthy to me is he was getting pressed by an American reporter from AP on that issue of the right to self-defense. Now, I know we're talking about very small progress here, but do you see the media's treatment of this violence from Israel as any better than their past treatment? Because we've seen these few tiny little glimmers. You saw an incredible interview um, with one of the Palestinians who happens to be a writer on CNN who was so profound and so powerful that got shared around quite a bit. Um, you saw Eamon Moyaldine on MSNBC, an old friend and colleague of mine, pressing, uh, I think that was a former Israeli ambassador, on mm -hmm. whether these were war crimes. I mean, that never happens on American right. TV. Mehdi Hassan also had a very strong exchange. So you've seen these tiny little glimmers and you do also within the Democratic Party, while the main line of the party continues the same old line, you have some dissent on the left of the party, impotent as it may be. I mean, should we bother counting any of that as progress? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if I when I think about 2008, 2009, that was the another Israeli attack on Gaza that caused the deaths of like 2000 Palestinians and hundreds of children. And then when I think of 2014 and I think of now, there's definitely been a huge change, both culturally, rhetorically, uh, in the way that this issue gets covered and treated. Uh, Palestinians have way more of a voice. And part of that, I think, is is people ha being in, in media, like you mentioned, Eamon, you mentioned Mehdi, I think people who have better positions and more nuanced positions on this issue, being in mainstream media outlets makes a difference. I also think that Israel has just gotten to a level of right wing insanity and violence that it's something that a lot of American, most American liberals can't relate to. Like we, cause you know, the mantra used to be Israel is this democracy that's like surrounded by these crazy barbaric Arab regimes and, and crazy Muslims. And it's this, you know, lone place that, that looks a lot like America. They're just like us. And that was a really, really powerful narrative, but that narrative no longer stands up to scrutiny because like we talked about you know, earlier, Israeli society is becoming more right wing and more religious and more fundamentalist. And you can't hide that. You see it. And I think, you know, the Trump administration definitely helped change this narrative because with the Trump administration, you had a government that was, you know, in lockstep with Netanyahu and with the Israelis. And it kind of really showed just how right-wing Israel is because Netanyahu was so supportive of Trump. Um, they were kind of like one unit and Jared Kushner and David Friedman and all these people in the administration. And so I think that's a huge part of it. I think it's Israel's just gotten so crazy that American Democrats and liberals can't identify with it. And I know for a fact, I know American officials who are in the Biden administration who just, you know, they're they're disgusted by, by what they see in Israel and what's done to the Palestinians. They won't say it out loud, um, but they all know it. They're not stupid. It's just a matter of the fact that America, including you know, American Democrats as well as Republicans, see Israel as a useful American vassal state in the Middle East. Israel is America's client state, just like Saudi Arabia. You know, we don't share any values or much in common with Saudi Arabia, but they can kind of get away with whatever they want. They can chop up a journalist inside an embassy in Turkey. And there's no repercussions because we need their oil. 
and they carry out American interests in the Middle East. It's the same for Israel. That's the same reason, you know, Democrats are facing this increasing, growing contradiction of having to figure out how they step around this issue. Because on the one hand, Israel's becoming a crazy state that you just cannot defend and justify their actions. But on the other hand, we need them. Uh, you know, as American imperialists, we need them. And so I think that contradiction is going to continue to grow and become more obvious, especially as you have these progressives in Congress who are more willing to, you know, risk themselves and their careers to speak out on this issue because they're just so horrified by what they're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's mostly just tweeting at this point. We'll see yeah. Exactly, yeah take, <laughs> Strongly worded letters and the Take like. any action. It'd be nice to take <laughs> Well, there action. is... There is, you know, I'm not one to talk up the squad and make them sound like they have more power than they do or they're doing more than they are. But I mean, I will say they did sign on to this letter by Betty McCollum, a representative in Congress, to deny the Israelis uh, or to basically prohibit the Israelis from using uh, American aid to hurt to basically to hurt Palestinian children. I don't know how they can enforce that, but that letter does show that the times are changing a bit. There is a group in Congress that's willing to at least come out a little bit. And, you know, yes, it's only rhetoric, but the fact that you have two members of Congress, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, openly supporting BDS, yeah. that's pretty and unprecedented. That, that said, sure is, yeah, but I want to no see, but. yeah, I want to <laughs> see them block pieces of legislation and make demands. I mean, we had, there's enough of them to do it. So do it, you know, right. and th the thing is, they're scared to do it because then the entire media will, you know, c go after them and make them out to be the enemy. And you have to have a real backbone in yeah. order to stand up like Especially that. Especially on this issue, you instantly oh, become an anti-Semite. For sure. But they're honestly, they're scared on like every issue. So to go back to the U.S. State Department thing, the reason why they couldn't say that Palestinians have a right to defend themselves is because if they admit that, then they're admitting that when somebody comes to kick them out of their homes, they have a right to defend themselves. And once, once you give in to that point, that's the whole ballgame. You're just admitting that Israel's in the wrong and the Palestinians are in the right. And so that's why they feel like they can't admit that. Um, but also, I wanted to bring up a Protective Edge again, because um, during Protective Edge, and correct me if I'm wrong here, they they attacked a power plant. They attacked apartment buildings. I believe there was even a, a school that was attacked. And if if we actually were to enforce international law, I mean, this obviously isn't allowed, but if anybody else was doing that and they weren't our ally, I honestly think the U.S. government would be calling for regime change in said country. Oh, a hundred percent. There's no question. I mean, that's the other thing is this this really exposes the double standard of America's moralizing weaponization of, of human rights, because it's 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 only applied to states that are our official enemy. I mean, I mentioned Saudi Arabia earlier. You know, they're carrying out what essentially amounts to like a genocide in Yemen. There, there's a famine. There's a man-made famine in Yemen. Hundreds of thousands of children could starve to death because of this country that we arm. And meanwhile, we don't say anything about it. I mean, there's some, some, some rhetoric here and there, but for the most part, nothing is said about it. Meanwhile, we go around telling the world, you know, Venezuela is evil, China is bad, Russia, you know, is a villain. And it just, you know, when Israel behaves this way and the U.S. defends the intentional targeting of civilian infrastructure and civilians in Gaza, when it calls the murder of Palestinian children in Gaza and ethnic cleansing in Jerusalem, when it calls that self-defense, Israel mm -hmm. defending itself, it just exposes the hypocrisy of our entire 
narrative of America, you know, is the police of the world and we're just supporting freedom and democracy. No, we're supporting what's good for American companies and American elites and American imperialism. Yeah. And I think to your point about the squad and other progressives taking a moral position on this, I do think that it matters that you at least have someone there to point out the distance between the stated values and the reality of what America is doing on the ground and how we're contributing to that situation. You know, Rania, I wanted to ask you, I'm sure you probably saw this, that um, the singer Halsey had tweeted one of Michael Brooks's videos um, talking about... Actually, I didn't. Yeah, cool. she tweeted this video of him answering a question about Israel. And he's he just basically says, look, there's a lot of complexities here, but just keep it really simple. This is an apartheid state. Like, that's really, you don't need to know everything about. And I think this is part of, there's like an intentional emphasis of the complexity of the situation <laughs> to keep people from diving into it and just taking what should be a really clear moral position. He's like, no, the only thing you really need to know is that this is an apartheid state. So what I'm curious for your perspective on is like Israelis are people just like anyone else. Some of them are good people. Some of them are bad people. Some of them are nice. Some of them are assholes, everything in between. Right. And yet everybody there has has more or less come to accept what is a thoroughly objectively immoral situation. How does that come to be? And what is the mythology that they're that they're buying into that enables them to, to, if not see themselves as the good guys in the situation, to at least tolerate what's going on? Well, I mean, it's Zionism, right? So Zionism is the ideology of Jewish nationalism, that there should be this Jewish state. Um, and, you know, it's it's like any, it's a settler colonial ideology. And like any settler colonial ideology, it comes with this victimhood complex. Um you know, and of course, you know, the history of the persecution of Jews and Europe has been weaponized to really play into this mentality of like, we're the ultimate victims here. And all of our enemies, present day and past, are all out to do what the Nazis did to the Jews. Um, and like I mentioned, Israeli education, that's what Israelis are essentially taught in kindergarten. Um, you know, Max Blumenthal wrote a really good book called Goliath a few years back. And it's a really great, great piece of investment investigative journalism that delves into the Israeli education system in a few chapters. Mm -hmm. And when you when you read about that and you understand that, you can understand why Israelis have the mentality they have, because they are told from a very, very young age that the Holocaust happened because Jews weren't strong, right? So we have to be strong. We have to be armed to the teeth. And the Palestinians are the modern day Nazis, and they want to take us out. So it's either us or them. And I mean, you can even go back to colonialism in America, settler colonialism. And there was a similar mentality among whites who were going and taking over Native American land and trying to hold on to it. And they viewed themselves as the victims, right? They viewed themselves as being attacked by these barbaric natives. It's not unique to Israelis or Israeli Jews. This is just a system of settler colonialism. And it's what comes with it. And it's the ideology that comes with it. And that is taught to the children in these societies. And so, you know, it's... It's sad to watch, but it doesn't have to be this way. But in order to 
end this, you really have to, you know, let go of Zionism. You have to let go of the idea of having and maintaining this Jewish majority state. And again, in an area of the world that is not majority Jewish. And that's the conundrum that liberals find themselves in is how do you support a Jewish state when you have so many non-Jews living within its borders or living under it's um, it's it's under its control because right now that's what you have. You mentioned the word apartheid. The reason people say it's apartheid is because you have almost you have like six million Palestinians living under the rule of an Israeli government that has stripped them of basic rights. And the only way you can continue to have this Jewish majority state is if you continue to deny those people rights and continue to to subject them to extreme levels of violence and control and domination. And so until that ideology stops being at Israel's foundation, this is going to continue. Yeah. And I mean, I never understood how people can logically and intellectually defend that carve out position of like, I believe in human rights. I believe in democracy, except in this one instance, maybe an <laughs> ethno state is fine. Maybe a theocracy is fine. It's like, but no, if you're arg- once you agree to that principle, then there's nothing that limits it. And like, why not black nationalism and why not white nationalism and why mm-hmm. not this religion excluding everybody? And why not that religion excluding everybody? So it's a slippery slope. You don't want to go down. And I get that. They say, Hey, there was, you know, we face some real, persecution. So that's why we're doing it. Okay. But, you know, throughout history, almost every group at some point or another has experienced persecution. Should everybody get exclusionary rights after that? And should we throw democracy out the window as a result of that? Yeah. Right. And you also, you also, I'll just add to what you just said is like, why are Palestinians paying for something that Europeans did? Like, if you want to look at it like that, like if you want to say, okay, we want to give Jews a state because of the Holocaust, well, that's something that the Germans did. Yeah, go like, give them why, Munich. <laughs> why are Palestinians suffering for something that Europeans did? Yeah, you know, I blame it doesn't Crystal even make personally. any sense. <laughs> She's got some like German, German in her. I, I blame her. Um, <laughs> yeah, you disgust me. Get away. My apologies. Um, <laughs> my apologies. <laughs> so, but also, I, I wanted to respond to your point, too. Like, you know, how can this happen, basically? I agree with what Rania said. It's it's the victimhood narrative that, you know, you're so afraid it's going to happen to you right now that you have to do it first. But there's also, I was also going to say, it's the same with America, though. And we're even a little different. It's not the victimhood narrative with us. We're just one layer removed from all the carnage and the devastation. And I was reminded of that book, Ordinary Men on Nazi Germany. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the phrase banality of evil. It's like, yeah. how can it be that you run the gas chambers in the day and then you go home at night and you, you know, kiss your daughter on the cheek or whatever. And... Listen, we all do it with the Iraq war. That was an illegal war, was an offensive war, killed hundreds of thousands of innocent people. We did torture. Um, There's a genocide in Yemen going on right now that we're actively supporting. We're on the side of Saudi Arabia. I mean, we freaking arm Al Qaeda. We did it during the Cold War. We do it now in Syria. So, like, we all do it to one extent or another. It's just, I guess, in the U.S. example... We're, it's like the lazy approach where we're just one layer removed from all the carnage. So we just don't think about it. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Well, and, and Rania, get into it as well. You mentioned a little bit of this. There's, of course, in any regime, there's some foundational mythology as well. And part of what is a, a powerful piece of that foundational mythology in Israel is you talked about the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, you know, forced off of their lands in the late 40s. 
And it's not viewed that way by a lot of Israelis. The mythology there is, oh, they just decided to leave. They just decided to vacate their lands and it was left open to us. And and we took over and we made our state and that's what we've done. Talk about a little bit of that mythology and how the some of the foundational myths play into the way that this conflict is viewed now. And, and also, by the way, is pervaded like American thinking about Israel as well. Right. So what you're talking about is this narrative of, you know, a land without a people for a people without a land. The idea being that there was nobody in Palestine. It was just this empty place. And so we needed a place because, you know, we were being pushed out of Europe. And this is the place that we found. We're making this really strong state. That was definitely it's definitely been important for popular culture, for the idea of why Israel exists and how it came into existence. But that was really exposed in the 70s and 80s, especially inside Israel, because you had actual Israelis going back through the Israeli archives to and the diaries of Israel's founders and exposing the fact that, oh, actually, like there was this really well-planned and orchestrated ethnic cleansing that our the founders actually like like militarily and strategically planned to terrorize the population of Palestine and force it out so they could take over. Um, and people wrote books about it. I think one of the most famous names that you guys might recall is Benny Morris, mm-hmm. wrote books about the like how Palestine was ethnically cleansed. And so the more dominant ideology isn't necessarily to deny it now inside Israel. It's more to accept it as having been necessary. Right. Mm. So it's not it's it's no longer that, oh, we just like took over this place. It's that it was necessary. And actually, we were attacked. The Jews were attacked. So we had to do something. So there's kind of these other, you know, mythological narratives that have come to shape why Israel came about and why it has to be the way it has to be like this whole, oh, all of the Arab armies of the Middle East invaded. And so we had to push the Arabs out because they were all agents of the Arab armies invading us. I mean, there's so many different ways that Israelis justify this. And they kind of have to because it's continuing today. Like this this campaign to push Palestinians out is continuing today in the West Bank, in Jerusalem. And like I mentioned earlier, even inside some Israeli cities where these settler organizations are trying to push Palestinians out of their neighborhoods. Uh, and, you know, to Kyle what, Kyle, what you were talking about earlier, yes. I mean, there are so many parallels to America and Americans here. I think Israel is just a more extreme version of it. Yeah. Um, a much more extreme version of it. But we have those same kinds of things in America. I mean, the whole Republican Party has that kind of like nationalism and mythology. I mean, you even see people like, you know, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and like, uh, I'm sometimes I mix up them up because they pretty much talk exactly the same. <laughs> but one of them, one of them, or maybe both of them talk about wanting to like annex Cuba like, like Cuba belongs to America or something. You know, they deny that. Bill Crystal that did it, that too. Yeah, Bill Crystal did that <laughs> yes, too. The well, other right. Like, hey, right. while we're doing DC statehood, <laughs> yeah. let's go why to Cuba. Why not Cuba? Yeah, we're like, wait, what? <laughs> it's a sovereign country. Maybe that's why not. <laughs> exactly. So we still, I mean, America, right, the Iraq war, a lot of the rhetoric yeah. and the war on terror rhetoric around the Iraq war was actually borrowed from the kinds of Netanyahu types who've been using that sort of rhetoric against Palestinians for decades. Um, and so that's how we've been 
been justifying our wars for the past year, using a lot of the same language that Israel uses about, you know, crazy Palestinian Muslims, Islamic terrorism, yada, everything's counterterrorism, everything's about security. We're just like that. It's just we're so far removed. We're separated from the victims of our policies by a massive ocean. Um, so, yeah. so that also means the blowback doesn't come back at us as hard as it does for Israelis. And you can imagine, I mean, think about the blowback with 9-11. 9-11 was blowback for arming the Mujahideen in the 80s. Um, yeah. We armed a bunch of religious fanatics to try to hurt the Soviets in Afghanistan, and that blew back in this crazy attack uh, on New York that killed 3,000 people. Think about the vengeful bloodlust of Americans after that attack. And now Israel, Israel's victims are right on its doorstep. And so when Israel's victims react and respond to Israel's atrocities or to what Israel's doing, you know, think about that American feeling after 9-11, and that's just how Israel constantly is. And so Gideon Levy, this excellent Israeli leftist journalist at Haaretz, I interviewed him a few days ago, he actually described to me in Israeli society this kind of, he used the word bloodlust, to really just constant desire for revenge and bloodlust against Palestinians. And yeah, it's a lot like Americans after 9-11. I mean, there's so many parallels. Yeah. By the um, way, I watched that interview. It's fantastic. Everyone should go check that out. <laughs> so um, let's talk a little bit about solutions. And Crystal and I were discussing this earlier today. You know, so I used to support the idea of a two-state solution because I thought it was real. I thought it was an actual <laughs> thing. But right. then, you know, you could only watch the peace process drag on for so long before you realize that, wait, what if the whole point of talking about the two-state solution and the peace process is to buy time, buy time, and buy time so you could keep evicting Palestinians from their land and ethnically cleansing them, which is effectively what it is. That's what's happening. So since the two-state solution is fake, and also, by the way, even in a two-state solution, you'd still have an ethnostate and a theocracy, which I'm, right. I'm against in principle. So then then the only uh, you know solution is sort of like in apartheid South Africa, you get rid of apartheid and you have one democratic state. I guess I guess that's the least bad option. But the thing that I'm worried about is like there really is like a deep seated hatred on both sides. That's something the likes of which I'm not sure we've ever seen. I don't even know if South South Africa can compare with what happened because you had this figure in Nelson Mandela and others who sort of, as a matter of principle, argued for like nonviolence is always the way. And this this view was almost like the whole society came to agree with that view. I mean, obviously there was violence and everything, but he was the voice of reason and the voice of reason prevailed. And so like, do you, how do you think that would go if we indeed got a one state solution and there was like a right of return and then you had one democratic state? Like, I feel like there's almost no way it can go smoothly, right? Well, so back to Nelson Mandela real quick. I think that yeah. it's wrong to say that he only supported nonviolence because it was dependent on strategy and he did support the use of violence when it was strategically useful. Well, he didn't um, condemn the people who were doing violence. There is I think, no, and a slight he, did, difference. he, he opened yeah. he pretty much he, he wasn't he wasn't against it. Um, that said, of course, he was he was a figure who in the aftermath of apartheid did help bring people together. But, you know, I don't think it's right to say that this is unprecedented. I mean, think about desegregation in the American South. Um, a lot of the same arguments that are made about why Israel-Palestine can't be one democratic state were
were made not just for South Africa, where, you know, where there was this fear that the white minority was going to be genocided if they gave black people rights. But also you had a similar conversation that took place in the American South, where there was, I think, more significant hatred than in Israel-Palestine, because that was, you know, something that went on for hundreds of years. Um, And, you know, there was a deep history of not just racism, but like lynchings and I mean, all kinds of things that, you know, Israel-Palestine hasn't had time for as much damage to take place, I don't think. Um, But that said, a lot of those same arguments were made. If we give black people rights... They're, you know, these people are still never going to get along. There's still going to be all this violence. They're going to come for the white. Wait, They're... just to be clear, Rania, hold on. Let me just cut you off for one sec. I want to be clear about my position. I'm not oh, saying, yeah. I'm not saying, hey, there's all these problems and we shouldn't do it. I'm saying we actually should do a but one how? state democratic state solution. All I'm saying is I think we need to be clear eyed about the fact that it's going to be messy as fuck. Right. No, there's not some magic solution. This is a conflict that's been going on since the forties. There's not some magic solution that's going to fix everything overnight. You can give everybody equal rights tomorrow. It doesn't mean those equal rights will be enforced. Um, you know, there's still going to be one side that has a lot more power and a lot more wealth, a lot more money, just like in America, white people have more power and wealth and money because of generations of being in charge versus black people. But I don't think that's, a, you know, I, I understand people make those arguments. There isn't one easy fix. It won't be pretty, but it has to happen. Like what's yeah. happening now isn't pretty. Mm-hmm. What's happening now is actually way more frightening yeah. because right now you've got a state made up of a society that's becoming more right wing and there's literally no obstacles in their way to to not to like they have nothing stopping them from carrying out their very violent and scary agenda. Um, and that's what we're seeing happening in Gaza, across Palestine, and across the West Bank right now. So, you know, I don't think it can happen overnight. And I do think there'll probably have to be some sort of truth and reconciliation. Yeah. Um, but that said, like, it's the, I just, I don't see any other answer. Like, either you either have permanent apartheid and permanent subjugation of one side, because like you said, the two-state solution is fake. It'll never happen. And it can't even logistically happen yeah. because of how many settlements you have in the West Bank. There is no, like, what what Palestinian state? There's no territory that they could even have as a state. Um, So there's really only one option here. And the the scarier side of things is the Israeli side, because they're the more powerful side. I think, I don't think if you give Palestinian rights, Palestinians rights, there's going to be this hate and viciousness, because there isn't some settler colonial ideology at their foundation. They're just natives who want their land, who want the right to like live where they live. That's all. Whereas the Israelis do have this really scary settler colonial ideology. And so I think that's going to be harder to get rid of if there is one state is like, how do you deal with that? Because, you know, those, those religious fundamentalists aren't going to go away. Um, they're still going to be there. Right. So it's like, I, I also think that, this is an issue that I, I, I'm very, very cynical about it. Of course, I support one democratic state, but I just don't see any way that's going to happen anytime soon. Not because yeah. it can't be necessarily implemented, though it would be difficult to implement, but because I don't, the people who are in charge, the Americans, yeah. there doesn't seem to be any desire yeah, or at least political willingness to even go there. Yeah, they won't yeah. stand um, up to them. No, it's the U.S. To needs be, to step in. Yeah, it's important to be clear not only about the U.S. clearly is given Israelis a blank check and a green light, um, and continues to and and has run cover for them at the U.N. and globally, um, continues to you know three point eight billion dollars in military aid every year, and then also that there's not a significant movement with any power within Israel to right. move towards 
one Democratic state. So with that being said, while that may be the ideal outcome that the three of us would ultimately like to see, what do you think is the more likely um, future? <laughs> That's a bleak I question. Mean, Sadly, I think the more likely future is this continued lurch to the right for the Israelis and this just ongoing, you know, explosion of violence every few years, which is what's been happening the last 20 years. I think it's just going to continue on this trajectory. I don't think it's going to be pretty. I think there's going to be more bloodshed. Um, And I think what's really alarming is to see what's happening inside Israel where you have Jews and Arabs like fighting each other. Uh, This is pretty unprecedented for this. I mean, this hasn't happened in decades where you actually have armed people like fighting each other uh, in the streets inside present day Israel. Um, so I don't, I don't think that bodes well. And I, I mean, I, I, I don't have any sort of rosy positive picture other than just more violence and bloodshed. And that's just my honest opinion on the subject. And I hate that, but I hope I'm yeah. wrong. Yes, we're seeing a lot of genocidal, you know, chants come on social media, which are absolutely terrifying. You know, I was reminded, fi- final point for me, um, I was reminded of, um, I forget which president it was. I don't know if it was Eisenhower or it might have actually been H.W. Bush. But there was one U.S. president who basically told the Israelis, like, no, and if you do that, I'm going to cut off all your money. Yeah, it was George W. or H.W. H.W., (laughs) yeah, it was H.W. And I was like, I was thinking about it. I'm like, why is it every modern president on that issue, they're massive cucks, whether it's <laughs> W. Bush or whether it's, you know, Obama or whether it's Biden or whether Trump, too. Tr- Trump was like, in. Trump was like, I'll give you whatever you want. Just put my face on some shit. Be really yeah. Happy. yeah. So, like, what is it? Why can't somebody just be like, fuck off? I think it's again, like I think it's like I mentioned, um, obviously, we all know there's an Israel lobby, uh, which definitely polices the political rhetoric on this issue. So that's a big part of it. Um, People, it's like career suicide, if you are a part of the establishment to speak out that way. Um, I'm kind of reminded of this time that I got to go with this Arab or Arab American organization that would meet with the State Department every year. This was back when Obama is tra- it was in charge. And it's like an off the record meeting where they just kind of complain to the State Department about what they don't like about American policy. Uh, <laughs> and so I was invited to tag along as long as I didn't like uh, take notes or like record it. Um, and so I went along and I what I thought was so interesting was that they speak much more openly, American officials in private, about how they feel about dealing with the Israelis. They don't mm. like dealing with the Israelis. The Israelis are assholes. Mm. Like, and it's because they have an Israel lobby that they can be. They are just, they're complete jerks to deal with. In fact, the way they talked about the Israelis versus the Saudis, they much prefer dealing with the Saudis because at least the Saudis buy American officials like gifts and stuff <laughs> after they're out of office. Yeah. <laughs> so like they like bought Colin Powell's wife like a really expensive diamond tennis bracelet uh. um, after he was out of office. And so dealing with the Israelis, especially for Democrats, because the Israelis actually openly attack Democrats, too. So and you remember how they treated Obama like they were who spoke under his nose. He like came to the U.S. Congress and gave a speech against the Iran deal. One of Obama's like biggest attempts at a diplomatic achievement. It was like a huge part of what his administration was doing. And he came to try to undermine it. Yep. Um, wow. But so, yeah, the, the, the Americans don't like dealing with the Israelis on a personal level. Um, and, you know, they, they just, I think that the issue goes back to the Israel lobby, but also America needs Israel. Like Amer- Israel really is America's bully in the region. Right. Like, you know, America, 
America has this ongoing conflict with Iran and they do see like Israel kind of carries out a lot of America's campaigns in Iran. Like they murder these nuclear scientists. They often do that in conjunction with American intelligence. Like they Israel, Israel needs to be understood in that lens of American imperialism, just like America has states in South America that where they have bases that act as, you know, America's bullies in that region. It's the same in the Middle East. In the Middle East, Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, the Saudis, these are America's greatest allies and attack dogs in the region. And so you have to kind of, if you're going to be an empire, which America is, and you want to push your interests everywhere, you know, there's a tit for tat. Like you kind of just have to let these people do what they want if you want to be able to use them as your client states. And so I think that's the thinking too, is like, we need Israel for American imperialism, just like we need Saudi Arabia. Um, And so I, I think it's just kind of funny to watch Democrats bend over backwards to try to justify it. They have a harder time than Republicans because at least Republicans like share a lot of these values. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the Israelis are right wing. So are Republicans. But with Democrats, it's, you know, there's something kind of comical about, you know, watching Ned Price, even though it made me so angry, but just watching him have to like bend over backwards and twist both his arms into yeah. like pretzels. Sweating. Oh, yeah. Sweating like so a little nervous. weasel. So uncomfortable. <laughs> to like Knew not he was bullshitting. Yeah, yeah. Guys, he, he CIA too, by the way. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is the thing is Republicans are comfortable with hard power anyway. They're totally mm-hmm. comfortable with this like realist view of foreign policy of like, yeah, they're murdering like dictatorial shitheads, but they're they serve our power interests. So we're good with it. I mean, Trump was totally obviously He's upfront about that. And a lot of Republicans <laughs> are. And uh, it I think your perspective of there used to be this sort of like patina rosy glow around Israel of like, well, this isn't really about our power interests. This is because they're a democracy and they're special and we're aligned and they're just like us, et cetera. That sort of rosy glow around them is starting to be stripped away. And in a lot of ways, that does go back to Netanyahu inserting Mm -hmm. himself directly in partisan politics. That made it a little bit harder for Democrats to just accept that sort of framing of the situation and frame the whole issue in a much more more partisan way. Young, exactly. young people have eyes. That's the thing is like we we see every time there's one of these. I love how they do the power washing like conflict in the middle. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they use terminology. It makes you think, oh, 50 50. Right. <laughs> but then you watch it and it's like I see one side backed by the most pow- powerful military in human history with fighter jets and all modern equipment and fucking Iron Dome, which knocks out like 90 percent <laughs> of Hamas's little fucking bottle rockets. And you're telling me that there's like a 50. 50- I see they're doing all the bombing and the killing and this side is sitting there like oh my god what are we gonna do so i think young people see that and that's why the polls show young people are way more sympathetic to the plight of the palestinians now than ever before and i would would give bernie some credit there too yes because he's the first really major candidate with a following who had a lot of courage on this i like how he spoke about the unemployment rate in gaza during a debate yeah yeah yeah, yeah, i loved that i love that i also think i also think it's important to recognize like you mentioned young people like young american jews are so different on this issue than their parents or grandparents were. I think because they're so far removed from the Holocaust from World War II, like that that kind of weaponization of the Holocaust doesn't work quite as well on like a 15-year-old who's super happy and comfortable in America yeah. <laughs> and doesn't mm-hmm. feel like they need to run away 
or ever, you know, need like an extra country just in case they don't feel that way. That doesn't really work on them. But also American Jews are just so liberal um, as a demographic that it's like they watch what's happening in Israel and they're like, well, I have nothing in common with that, like at all. And so that's why it's so interesting to see also, like you mentioned, Netanyahu really inserting himself into partisan politics as Netanyahu, the Likud party and parties to their right in Israel take over the Israeli government. They're depending more and more and openly saying it on American evangelical Christians. So like they're base in America isn't even American Jews anymore. It's evangelical Christians who only support Israel because they're like rapture ready and they want all Jews to go there because once they do, the idea is it'll bring about the rapture. And what does the rapture do to Jews? Well, if you actually read what it says, it has them burning in an everlasting pit of fire. (laughs) So it's not exactly the, it's not exactly the kind of people you want to be allying with if you actually care about Jewish safety, <laughs> people who want to use Jews to bring about the end times. Yeah, so that's another interesting dynamic of how things are like moving with this issue. Rania, tell people where they can find you. You can find my work. You can follow me on Twitter at Rania Kalik and also follow Breakthrough News where I work on YouTube. And you can follow all of my um, stuff at Breakthrough News on my program Dispatches with Rania Kalik on Spotify, soon to be on Apple Podcasts. So great talking to you, Rania. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. You guys rock. I've always been a huge fan. Um, And so thank you. All right. So there you have it. Rania Kalik. um, Brilliant. She really laid out the case very well there as as what's happening. Um, You know, a lot of people, I'm not sure how many people know the whole history of the region, but I feel like in order to get a good sense of what's going on now, you have to know the whole history of the region. And, you know, um, what was the creation of Israel was 1947, 1948. And then you had the expansion of the borders in 1967. And excuse me, you have, um, you know, now you have what she accurately describes as effectively an open air prison in Gaza. Right. You have the, um, illegal settlements in the West Bank, and this is illegal according to international law. It's really not in dispute. I mean, I guess you could say that Israel and the U.S. disputes it, but that's it. Everybody else is like, who are you kidding? This is ridiculous. So in order to understand what's going on now, you need to understand the decades-long occupation. You need to understand that the long-term goal is effectively the ethnic cleansing of the region and the creation of an expanded Jewish state. So it's an ethno-nationalist theocracy in a way. And um, once you get all of those uncomfortable facts, you get a much clearer picture as to what's going on. Yeah. And um, I'm sorry. I was going to say yes and no. I mean, I think the history is important and understanding all of those pieces really helps to have like a sort of more a deeper knowledge of what led to this point. But I actually take the Michael Brooks point of like, all you really need to know is that this is an apartheid state and that it's a moral atrocity on the scale of if you saw it in another context and all of those layers of like the way we've been told to feel about Israel and our special relationship and all, if that was all stripped away, it'd be incredibly clear to every single American. So in some ways, I do feel like the complexity of the history and the different maps and the different wars and this part was annexed and these that's when these people were pushed down and all of those disputed claims is in some ways used used as a it's weaponized to keep people from having what is in effectively very clear moral position on this. Well, you know, what's funny is that the propaganda is so sloppy, if you ask me, mm. because it, you know, it, it's just so 
they're such bold lies when they say stuff like the only democracy in the Middle East. It's like you're referring to it as a democracy full stop. And you think that's a sufficient title for it? Mm -hmm. That's not remotely sufficient. Like you said, it's an apartheid state. It's in in some ways a theocracy. You know, it's a Jewish state like you can't have it both ways. You can't say it's a democratic Jewish state. If I set up, you know. Can Saudi Arabia say we're a democratic Islamic state? Right. You'd be like, no, one thing contradicts the other. You can't be an Islamic state. You can't be a Christian state. You can't be a Jewish state and be a democracy. A democracy, by definition, is not exclusive to one religion. Right. Well, and if we're if we're going to apply that label, you can say Iran is a democracy. I mean, right. they probably have more of a claim to it in some ways than Israel even does. But yeah, it's, it's a remarkably clumsy propaganda. And yet, until very recently, it wasn't challenged at all in America. No, you were just fed not the bullshit. In mainstream yeah. There was no one in the Democratic Party to even dissent and point out the contradictions, to point out nobody that, you know, would get any sort of attention or have any sort of mainstream um, a, not mainstream appeal, but any sort of like mainstream credence. So now at least you have some people who can make you uncomfortable, right? It used to be, I mean, and I'm not talking about a long time, but 10 years ago, if you were a Democrat and you were saying what, you know, Joe Biden is saying or said what Andrew Yang said in the in the New York mayor's race, those things would be totally uncontroversial. Not a soul would challenge you on it. So that's the only place where you can say there has been progress in that at least now there are some voices that are going to make you realize how dissonant what you're saying in this one specific case is from the other set of values that you claim to support. Yeah, but then again, you will immediately be called every single one of us that just did the show will be called an anti-Semite immediately Mm -hmm. upon releasing of this. Yeah. By all the same people that cry about cancel culture too. a lot of them. Yes, that's very true. Have a complete. Perry Weiss. Where this is concerned. Yeah, that's the way that definitely comes to mind. Funny that we bring up Barry Weiss in the context of this episode because she loves Israel, but also we want to beat her on Substack. Yes, that is true. (laughs) Which we still are not beating her. So I don't know why you guys are sleeping Uh, on that. I mean, fine. If you want us to lose to Barry Weiss. I will commit seppuku live on air, <laughs> but I don't want to do that. I liked how Rania talked about, look, we need to stop like considering Israel as any sort of special relationship. This is about American power, full stop. And the minute you see them in the same vein as a Saudi Arabia or a UAE, where we're not pretending Saudi is like good on human rights, it's very naked. Like the calculus is very naked. The minute that you under really understand that and strip all those layers of bullshit away, the, the better you're going to understand the American relationship with Israel. Yeah, but what's interesting is that, like, take Obama, for example. He gets in there. He obviously knows that the veneer, the fake cover story is nonsense. But then, like... I feel like every president makes a calculated decision. I just got to keep the trains on time for four years and then I'm out of here. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to fundamentally rework the system. No. Because reworking the system is really difficult and you'll be in the wilderness for a while. Well, they look at it the same way we just did of like, well, there's no fucking chance this is going to work. You know, like this is too hard. This situation is too intractable. I'm just going to like hope for the best. That was clearly that was clearly Biden's plan coming in of like, I'm just not going to talk about this or deal with this whatsoever and hope I don't have to like say anything on it or actually do anything on it. And those plans have obviously been foiled. But that's why principle is so important. Mm -hmm. That's why principle, because the when you have a principle, what you say is this, no matter what, this, 
and I don't care about the consequences. Whatever the consequences are, we'll deal with them, but this is the right thing as a matter of principle, so we must do it. And unfortunately, on the political landscape, there are very few people who think in a principled sort of way. Oh, Most yeah. people are more like consequentialists, and they're like, well, like, what are the, what's, what are the results going to be? How's this going to play out? And I think another problem with that is you can never really determine exactly how that's going to happen. Yeah, so you got to have a lot of humility there. Yeah, like if you don't know really how it's going to unfold, then why not actually act from principle and then deal with the consequences? You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, in this case, it is a great example of acting from principle would be incredibly hard. It would be incredibly difficult. But Rania made the point, and she's correct. But what are we going to do? Leave it like it is now? Is that what you want to do? Right. Like, it's the worst it could possibly be now. It's ethnic cleansing happening. In re- it's a slow motion ethnic cleansing is what it is. Mm-hmm. And, like, what are we supposed to do? Just let that keep happening? And the thing that, man, this gets me so much, and I'll get yelled at for this, but I'll say it because it's true. The the next-level victimhood bullshit you hear from the Israeli government as they're the ones committing the atrocities, it's like they're bombing schools, they're bombing power plants, they're bombing apartment buildings, it's 80% civilian casualties on the Palestinian side, and then, God forbid, you point that out, they're like, ooh! You must be an anti-Semite for pointing this out. I'm such a victim. Remember the Holocaust? Remember the Holocaust? It's like, that's the grossest trick I've ever seen. Like, reel it in with your fake outrage. Nobody gives a fuck. Bibi Netanyahu, precisely zero people in the world actually think you're a fucking victim. Okay? Zero. You're not getting it by anybody anymore. Doesn't matter how many times you scream anti-Semite or bring up the Holocaust. What's happening now is what's happening now, and it's obvious. The Holocaust doesn't justify you committing atrocities on another persecuted, like turning other people into your victims. Right. I mean, exactly. that's just that doesn't make any logical or moral sense. So um, I don't I mean, I'd love to find like a silver lining or a thread of hope or something. I guess the only thing I can say is that. As it was with segregation in the U.S., as it was with South Africa, sometimes these situations seem impossibly, irretrievably stuck in a horrific, unacceptable status quo. And then there is pressure for change and change ultimately comes. But it's it's hard to see that we're moving in that direction here, because just as you said, I mean, They've been very effective at shutting down any criticism. Mm -hmm. I mean, that anti-Semitism charge, especially leveled against people who really care about bigotry, Mm -hmm. who the last thing they want to do is be labeled as like a racist Mm -hmm. or a xenophobe or a bigot in any way. That charge really stings and deters a lot of people from saying a word. It's so cynical, on, though. On it's this so issue. Cynical. Yeah. And, and look, I think the piece of this that has just been made totally clear by Netanyahu is how fake the two-state solution is and how they're just, I mean, they know it's fake. It's t- They're so full of shit. And they're, they have actively created the conditions on the ground so that no one with the straight face could tell you like, oh, yeah, we're going to be able to work out a two state solution. That's so incredibly far gone as to be just completely off the table, even if that's a result that you would want, which, as you point out, it's not. Yeah. What I don't understand is why. So Netanyahu, uh, he's not a religious fundamentalist. You could argue the reason he does what he does is more based in power nationalism. Mm-hmm. You know, like he he's a he's a. Israeli nationalist. Right wing nationalist. Right. But like, it's funny that the distinctions sort of melt away between the ultra orthodox fundamentalist Jews and the secular nationalists, where uh, effectively they end up taking the same position and supporting the same atrocities. That's well, the same and thing in the US, right? True. But, you know, it's kind of stunning to me. It, like, old ideologies die hard. 
and it's there they just refuse to adjust with new evidence move forward be more enlightened and that's the main reason why we are where we are is because they are committed to this long-term project this greater israeli project this you know jewish state project and um look at all the damage that it's causing it's causing so much damage and death and destruction and the people living in gaza really are living living in an open-air prison and it's something like 90 percent of the water is not even drinkable there was a report that came out from the un in like 2015 or something that said by 2020 gaza is going to be uninhabitable well guess what it's 2021 it's basically uninhabitable people live there but yeah. it's like uninhabitable yeah so uh god and they just don't care they just don't care. And when you have these, there's a lot of like human rights organizations that actually secretly are sort of pro-U.S. biased. And even those human rights organizations are like, yeah, there's yeah. no, you know, covering over this one, guys. I mean, there's, there, we can't spin your shit here. I saw Max Boot writing a piece. I was very self-serving, but writing a piece about how like you really can't look at the situation and not see Israel as the aggressors here. Max yeah. Boot, who's like the neocon. I mean, now he uses it to make an anti-Trump point, of, of course, course, because yeah, that's yeah, his right. that's his whole thing. Yeah. But the fact that you even have Max Boot looking at this situation and being like, this was Israel's fault is kind of amazing. Hamas shoots fucking bottle rockets into cow fields and Israel has Iron Dome, which knocks 90 percent of those fuckers right out the air. They also Don't... have rocks. They throw rocks. And... Oh, the, the <laughs> they rocks versus Israel with three point eight billion dollars sent to them from the U.S. every single year. And that's why every time when the dust settles in these situations, they have the casualty numbers and the casualty numbers are always astonishing overwhelming it's always like six israelis dead and thousands of palestinians dead and by the way 80 percent of the palestinians are civilians yeah and they always use this um you know israeli officials who've been challenged on this they always say, oh well they're using these the reason that we blew up that apartment building is because they're using civilians as human shields always every single time right so that's the justification and my response to that which i said on my show as well is okay so take Take, take this exact same idea and put it into play for your your kid's school. So, oh, a terrorist group took over your kid's school. And then the police department comes to you and says, okay, we're going to bomb it all to the ground. Right. Like, You'd be like, wait, what? I didn't, how's that even on the table as an option? The, my kids are in there. Right, but we're going to just bomb it all the ground. They're using your kids as human shields. So sorry, they're going to go. And right. if it's this like dastardly plan that they're going to use human shields, then why does Israel always sort of like... Give them exactly what they want. Like, oh, their plan worked again. We killed the civilians. Damn it. Right. You know, well, and, and here's the other thing is, especially in Gaza, where, you know, the population is very cramped together. Like, of course, they're going to be militants by civilians and living amongst civilians. It's, it's just literally not space for there to be any like meaningful separation between those groups. So and they're also not actually they're not actually a direct threat to anybody. Like I said, even the ones that are shooting rockets, do I condemn shooting at civilians? Of course I condemn shooting at civilians, but Iron Dome is going to knock that shit right out of the sky. You are protected. You don't have to level an apartment building. You don't have to level a school. You don't have to attack the power plant. You don't have to, you know, kill X number of civilians, 500 children like in 2014. I don't know how many, 10 to 20 or something died this time around yeah, so far. Right. You don't have to do that. They are choosing to do that. They are actively choosing to do And when you choose to kill civilians for a political or religious reason we have a word for that war crime terrorism that's a there's this oh, there's this weird thing that happens with, only with the u.s and only with israel where 
we say if it's state violence, doesn't matter if it's for a political or religious reason, we're going to say it's not terrorism because it's legitimate by definition because the state is doing it. Right. I don't agree. It was self-defense, Kyle. Those children posed a dire, dire threat to Israel. That's what they have to argue, right? That's it. That's the position of the United States government. Congratulations, everyone. Um, well, sadly, we are still behind Barry Weiss, so you guys need to get on top of that. <laughs> guys, seriously, get us in front of Barry Weiss. Please subscribe <laughs> to Crystal Kyle and Friends. It, it's, it'll be... In the link in the video description box below. Um, you gave yourself three months before uh, Seppuku? Three months before Seppuku, yeah. Somebody, it's a, a bunch of people said it's called Harikari too or something. Oh, really? Oh. I don't know. Apparently there's multiple words for when you kill yourself for to prevent shame or honor something. Shame. Yeah, it's in like an honor killing of yourself. Okay. Yeah, I don't want to honor kill myself. We have to beat Barry Weiss. The fact that we're not already in front of her is the saddest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> For the love of God, guys. So last time we jumped two spots. Do you have the thing in front of you now? Hold I might actually on, have the thing on, in front of me. Hold on, I yeah, can get it. I pull can it up. Get it. Um, so last time we went from, oh, you know what somebody else said? The huh. only reason we went from 14 to 13 last time yeah. is because somebody moved from Substack. Oh, Daily Poster moved. No, but there was, I think Ben Shapiro's thing was in front of us and they moved it to something else. I think that's what somebody said. Why did someone point that? I don't want to know that. I I didn't want to fucking know it either, but I was going to tell you it because it might be true. No progress has been made. No progress has been made. (laughs) Are you guys fucking kidding me? It's five dollars a month, and you get every video. You get to see the lovely crystal ball. You get to see Yasha Monk, Dan Rather, Barry Weiss. That's the Dan one. Rather? We're behind <laughs> that motherfucker's 117. He's an icon. What can I say? <laughs> icon my ass cheeks, Dan. Dan, it's time to go out to pasture, son. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what you're doing around here. But we got, we got, you got to move along. You got to move so along. Hip that he's on Substack. You know, he's not on he's Substack. Like, he's got like some person he pays seven dollars an hour to be on Substack. Thing is called Steady. It says, "Hopefully, we can build a safe harbor amidst a sea of noise." There you go. You can let that slogan get in front of us. That shit. That shit. <laughs> that shit. Post on here called my week in tweets. <laughs> <laughs> A hundred-year-old tells you about his weekend tweets. He's <laughs> beating us. <laughs> Guys, come on. Dan Rather should be, like, <laughs> watching reruns of Murder, She Wrote and, like, rubbing Ben Gay on his arm. <laughs> like, that's all he should be doing. Instead, he's beating you and me on Substack. Mm. That's the saddest thing I've ever heard in my life. Indeed. Guys, please subscribe. Crystal Kyle and friends on Substack. $5 a month. Link below. If you don't do it, I love you kind of, but not as much as the ones who actually do it. So get us in front of Barry Weiss. Get us in front of Dan. If we don't jump at least one spot, if we don't jump at least one spot, I might have to do seppuku next week. Put it off at least. Give us at least two weeks. You know what the problem is? People want to see me commit seppuku. That could be it. You That's the problem. created an incentive. Right. So if they get us in front of Barry Weiss, I'll commit seppuku. How about that? <laughs> I'll do the honor, the shame killing if we get in front of her. Uh, I don't know. I don't know about that. Why? You think we're going to get in front of her? So you're betting that we're not. Now you're betting against us, basically. I don't like that dynamic. No, I'm not betting against us. I want to commit seppuku. You've affirmatively decided you'd like to do the the honor killing. 
uh, we got to come up with something other than the seppuku thing because it's got to be something real that the people will look forward to if we get in front of Barry Weiss. All right, we'll workshop that. We'll think about that and we'll come back. But for now, subscribe anyway. And we have an awesome guest next week who I'm not going to say because every time I say the person ends up like not working out. But we have a really cool guest for next week that's going to be fun to talk to. All right. Love you guys. Bye.